So I was in such a giving mood today, this week. <clears throat> I gave Mikey, our sound guy, a cold, and Sean, I gave a cold too. So what's really funny this morning, I can't hear a thing. So it's like, I'm like this. And then uh, Mikey can't hear a thing, and Sean can't hear a thing. So we have no idea how the music sounds. We're like, yeah! Rock on! Welcome, if you're new to Element, how are you doing? Uh, there are, oh, there are no, do, some Bibles out there? <laughs> we got some Bible. there'll be some Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. Uh, if you forgot one, you can use one. There's also sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. <laughs> we had no idea we ran out of Bibles. Way to go for service. Take those Bibles. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app called Uversion. And so, you know, I had somebody last week tell me they thought it was kind of cool that a lot of churches were like, turn off your cell phones. And we're like, turn them on. Download Uversion. Follow along with the sermon. Awesome. If you're going to use your phone in service, may as well be following along with the sermon notes and looking at verses. So download that. Click live. It'll bring up all the notes for this morning. Uh, I have two things to talk to you about. Next week, if you are someone who sometimes attends Sunday night service, next week there is no Sunday night service because it's Halloween. And we think you guys should be either at your house handing out candy or out with your kids trick-or-treating and getting to know your neighbors. And we'll talk more about that next week and why I say that. So, yay! I had first service had a couple of moms go, yay! <laughs> You're not a church that says, we're going to hold a harvest festival and you don't get to... <laughs> anyway, we, there's a purpose why we want you guys out among your neighbors. So, anyway, uh, so next week, Halloween, no evening service. You guys should be out sharing your faith. Uh, and the second thing I've got to talk about is our baby share. We, it's not like, oh, I got a baby, you want to share it. Baby share, although some moms are like, please share baby. Now, baby share is, is a program that uh, someone in Element just had a baby recently, and they realized having a baby costs a lot of money. And so they had this idea, and it's a great idea. And what we're going to do is if you have had a baby recently or in a little bit before, and you have some nice stuff that you no longer use that you just kind of keep in your attic for maybe one day, Donate it to us. Uh, we're going to start cataloging, keeping all these things so when people in Element or even people in our community have kids, they can come in, they can check out maybe like a crib or a playpen or, or maybe even get some clothes because those are expensive as well. Probably not recycled diapers, you know. In the, but, you know, uh, some stuff that actually helps people. You can come in and check out and, and use those things and bring them back when you're done so we can check them out to somebody else because it is expensive. And we want to be able to help people, especially in these economic times, not to have to spend so much money. But we are pro-families. We love babies. We think they're awesome. So if you're married, get going on that. That's, that, that's awesome stuff. That's awesome stuff. So what we need from you is if you have like a cabinet shelf or shelving in your garage. Maybe you're like one of those guys who's a pack rat and your wife's always going, throw that stuff away. You never touch this in five years. Throw that stuff away. Give us the shelf. Because okay? we'll take those shelves because we need them to start putting... Don't go buy a new one because you know, I'm sure there's plenty of dudes in here that have too much junk on their shelves already. So throw away stuff. Give us the shelves and we'll put, so we can start getting this stuff ready for moms. Right? All right. Why don't you stay on the arena of God's Word? It'll be like Christmas. People's old shelves. Be wonderful. Uh, this is Job 7, 17, and 18. And my cold medicine's starting to wear off, so go with me. Uh, what is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Let's pray. Father, we ask that as a people, we would understand when 
you allow hard things to come into our lives and that we would trust you in those and that we would understand that you have created us in humanity to be a certain way and that you would teach us as your people to live in that redeemed way. Amen. Have a seat. So we are in week four of a series called Made. It's a topical series, which I'm not very good at, but we're going with it anyway. This is about how God has made every single one of us unique. God likes that uniqueness. There are lots of Christians and there's lots of other religions that want to cookie cut everybody to look exactly the same, wearing the same clothes, the same tennis shoes, drinking the same grape juice with a tinfoil hat on your head. Uh, there are other religions that teach you that your sole goal is to reach enlightenment. And when you reach enlightenment, you become one with the cosmic consciousness of the universe. And you cease to become you. That is not God's intention for you. God's intention for you is that he creates you uniquely you. And that throughout eternity in heaven, you will worship God uniquely as you. That every circumstance you go through in your life makes you who you are. And God prizes that uniqueness and that individuality of who you are. But he also calls us to be a people that bow in submission to him and live lives connected to each other. Central to becoming who he calls us to be, we must understand ourselves. And I told you last week that I have a hard time teaching you like this because I don't want any of you to get the wrong idea. When I say we're helping you to understand you, it's not because you are so great that you need to get better in touch with you. You are the problem. You're the problem, I'm the problem, Jesus is the solution. Our culture spends too much time trying to get you to focus on yourself. It's led to some major issues like depression and debt because when you focus on yourself, you realize how bad you are. It's like, i got to go buy something to make myself feel better. And then you go into debt and then you get really depressed and your self-esteem just plummets. Right, because you're terrible. You're terrible, but Jesus is good. So what I talked to you about is not to build your self-esteem. My goal is to help you understand how God sees you, what he calls you to, that your eyes should always be upon him to ever properly understand you. You were not meant to be anyone but you. God knew what he was doing when he made you. And so the first week we talked about in this series will help you trust God, that he made you how he wanted you to be, and you simply need to embrace that. The second week we talked about spiritual growth, that we all come to this a little bit differently. We learn a little bit differently. And so when we come to issues of spiritual growth, we all do just learn differently. And last week we talked about how your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness. And today I'm going to talk to you about how we were made to simply be human. Really, yes, God made you to be a human. He wants you to live as one. But humanity is never true humanity without Jesus at the center of everything that we do and the center of our lives. Uh, in, in the church, meaning not the building, but the people in the building, we have what's called a sin problem. And the problem is not just that we sin, although that's huge and everybody has the problem. The bigger problem is many times we feel like we can't even talk about it. Our problem is that we pretend that we don't have a problem. People tell stories, or sometimes I'll even tell stories about ourselves or other people, and it's very comfortable when those stories all end with a happy ending. Oh, I used to sin, but now I'm all better. Sometimes people get to give testimonies that always have a happy ending with the bow on top, because we don't want a cliffhanger. We want it all tied up. I used to have a problem. I met Jesus. Now I'm doing great. Imagine if you went to see a counselor, and you walked to a counselor, and you said, okay, I need to see a counselor, but I only want to talk about problems I used to have. I don't want to talk about problems I have now, just my my old problems. So let's just talk about those. When I was three, I used to wet the bed. I mean, how much good would that actually do you? Why would anyone go to a counselor to try and convince a counselor that they don't need a counselor? Why do people ever show up in church or go to a small group to try and convince the people in a church or a small group that they don't sin, that they have no problems and everything's wonderful in their life? This is one of the reasons we're called to do life together. 
because we need each other. Uh, I recently had someone who went to another church call me and ask if I would do counseling for this person and their wife because they couldn't tell anybody in their church because if they did, they would get looked down upon. And I thought, then you're in the wrong church. And then I knew another couple. It's not you. I'm not talking about you. Don't be offended. Okay. Uh, I knew another couple who stopped going to their small group because they started to have some marriage problems and didn't want their small group to find out about it. When that's exactly where they needed to be is in that small group. I mean, so, so much of what we do, we spend so much time trying to look better than we actually are. I wonder, even in my small group, how, how my air of superficiality has maybe added to the, not the depth that my small group should actually have. What I know about this couple is that the one place that they could have had safety and healing was not that place for them, and it needed to be. People go to a doctor, they're okay telling a doctor that they have you know, a problem with their body. They're okay telling a mechanic that their car has a problem. Why is it so difficult for people who sin to tell other people who commit sins that they have a sin problem? I mean, God really knows who you are deep in your core. But in other, for other people to actually live this life that we are called to together, we must get real about being who we are. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. David was considered one of Israel's greatest kings that ever lived. But David was a polygamist. He was a terrible father. He uh, coveted another man's wife. He committed adultery with her. He attempted to deceive the husband. Then he had the husband eventually murdered. I mean, this is crazy. Then he covers it up for a year. He is a liar, an adulterer, a coveter, and a murderer. No one walked around wearing the what would David do bracelet. Nobody did that. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, this is Saul, the previous king before David. And Saul is totally messing up. His heart isn't following who God wants him to be. And this is what it says to him in 1 Samuel 13, 14. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Who is he talking about? David! David, do you think it's possible for someone to struggle deeply with sin and yet still long for God at the same time? Of course it is. Of course it is. In Romans 7.19, Paul says, For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. That sounds like my life right there. I mean, Christian conferences, they drive me crazy because everybody gets up and tells everyone else how they did it and it worked for them. I saw this one Christian guy on TV, because that's where all the crazies seem to go, is on TV. And he talked about the two sins that plague his spiritual life. Number one was that there were times he said when he was on an airplane and he was not as bold in witnessing to the passenger next to him as Jesus would have been. And I thought, man, when the person next to me is sleeping, I think Jesus would be like, sleep, buddy, you need it. You know? And then the second thing he says was there were times when his mind wandered while he was praying. I'm like, really? really? If I, as your pastor, only struggled with those two things, go me. It would be, I'd be awesome. Yeah. But seriously, guys, I will tell you, this is why I tell you every week, I am terrible. I am terrible. I sometimes feel just like Paul in 1 Timothy 1.16 when he says that he is the worst of sinners. But if I stand up here and I confess serious sins all the time, tell you, oh, I can be mean to my wife, some people think, well, he shouldn't be a pastor. He's not perfect. Right, right. But if I only confess safe, non-scandalous sins, you're going to learn to be inauthentic and hypocritical. It is a terrible dilemma. Our church culture has created a people who cannot confess sins without feeling like they need to lie and sin a little bit in confessing their sins. 
But for you and I to have a relationship with others and with God and it to grow deep, we must become real and honest about the sin that is common to us all. We must admit that we are human and humanity is fallen. God wants to redeem it, but we live as a fallen humanity. Now, at Element, we push small groups a lot. And we just had a staff retreat where we talked about the goals of where we want to go and be as Element. And we are changing the names of our small groups to Gospel Communities. Because we believe that all of our small groups need to be places that are centered around the gospel, and that is what community comes out of, that our great God has invited us into friendship and relationship with himself, and so then that is why we gather and get together. I think that if gospel communities go well, it could cut my counseling load in half. Because, <laughs> yay, go gospel communities! You know. Because, because in gospel communities, you, this is a place you'd be known by other people when it's not just getting together for an hour and a half for a Bible study. This, this is what the church is to become, these gospel communities. People live together. They do life together. Other people know you deep enough. When you have an issue, that's where you go because they know you well enough. But we also understand it takes a lot of time to trust other people. But when we can step into openness and sincerity and stop pretending, you will find yourself beginning to come alive. If you always stay hidden and pretend, you will never be all that God calls you to be. So, I believe there are two things other than the redeeming work of Christ in our hearts and lives that will make these gospel communities viable. And the first one is well, sincerity and acceptance. In sincerity, I want you to open to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Now, the word sincere, it has origins. They're really hard to trace. Everybody thinks they're going different directions. But there's one that I really like, and I think it's true just because I like it. Uh, the ancient Romans used to prize Greek sculptures for their artistic appearance. Their favorite statues were made of marble, and by the time they, they came to this prominence, they, their favorite statues were already centuries old, and they had gaps and cracks where the, cracks where the marble was missing. Now, you know, just like you and I, when we get old, it seems that gaps and cracks kind of start to show up. And so certain vendors, they discovered that if you put wax in the sculptures, the figures would look real and whole again. They look beautiful. It's kind of like Botox for, for statues. But it only lasts for a season. See, just like Botox for people. Uh, the wax looked real in the marble, but over time the wax would yellow and harden and dry and become apparent that the statue was not totally authentic. So if a vendor wanted to sell you a statue that was made of marble and it was the real deal through and through, all marble, they would mark it with the word sin, which is the word for without, and then the word Sarah, which is the word for wax, without wax. Hebrews 10.22 says... Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with a heart without wax, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. Open to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 46. So we approach God with a heart without wax, and then when the Christian church started and they start to meet together in people's homes, the same word is again used. Acts 2, 46 says, They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Why? Because they were without wax. There was a circle of connectedness where everyone could come in just as they were. Why were they glad? Because where hearts are sincere, they will be glad. We approach others the same way we would approach Christ, sincere, without wax. Now, the second word, acceptance, turn to Romans chapter 15, verse 7, which is just one chapter over. See, just making it easy for you this morning. Paul writes to an early community of believers, and this is what he says in Romans 15, verse 7. He says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Now, acceptance is more than just being liked by someone else. The word literally means to grant someone access to your heart. 
So in Romans 15, 7, it tells you that Jesus has granted you access to his heart. And so we are to do the same thing to other people around us. You and I, when we come to Christ, we don't have to pretend to be any better than we are. And Christ accepts us, redeems us, renews us. How did Jesus accept you? Just the way you were. When someone knows the embarrassing, humiliating truth about us and still accepts us, it becomes liberating. But Jesus loves you too much to leave you the way you are. And so he begins to change you. He calls us into who we were always meant to be. Whole, honoring others, honoring him, bringing glory to the Father. Learning to be holy, human, in a redeemed humanity. Now there's a recent article that I read that showed that one sign of narcissism is the desire to be admired is stronger than the desire to be liked. And if you are only in superficial relationships, you can begin to forget your own brokenness. But when you're with people who know you deeply, who accept you fully, their acceptance will touch your brokenness, just like Jesus does. And through their very touch, you can begin to heal. This is the mystery that Paul talks about many times in the gospel of when people come together, of this fellowship and acceptance, God's spirit flows. Have I mentioned that you need to be in a gospel community? You need to be in a small group. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. You should all sign up. You should all be part of one. Soapbox. Okay. So, so God made us to live in community, sincere, without wax. But how do these actually happen? What are gospel communities supposed to actually look like? First one, in gospel communities, you must give the gift of confession. You must give the gift of confession. Uh, the, I will tell you the most important moments in my spiritual life is when I sit down with some of my close friends and I'm honest about me. I have no wax. It is just honesty. I have a friend who we try to get together weekly and we sit down and we hold no secrets from each other. He tells me of his fears, his embarrassments, his jealousies, when he feels like a coward, how he hurts his wife emotionally with his anger. I share with him my sadness over not having a child, how I react poorly in certain situations, how I sometimes can treat my wife poorly. I tell him my regrets with money because I am terrible when it comes to money. I tell him other things keep me up at night. And yes, I feel very vulnerable and so does he. But we both know that we love each other in this friendship. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, there is joy and there is hope and there is laughter usually when we talk about you guys. You know. but, but the truth is I can only be loved to the extent that I am known. And if we keep all of our lives apart and secret from every other person, no one will ever know you. No one. You will never understand the great love that God calls His people to, this deep and unconditional love. Someone may even walk up to you and say, you know what, I love you. But deep inside, you're thinking, well, you wouldn't love me if you really knew the whole truth about me. You can only receive love from others to the extent that you are known by others. You cannot be fully loved if you are not fully known. This is one of the reasons why, as believers, we know that God loves us because we are fully known and we cannot hide anything from Him. I am not saying you go out and tell everyone all your deepest, darkest secrets. No, that would just make you a nut. Don't do that. But you can initiate that with the few people who are close to you and you trust, the gift of confession. In a human sense, to be fully known and fully loved is the most healing gift that one person can give to another person. And it all comes out of Christ's great love for us first. In James 5.16, he says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Yes, we are all forgiven. All of our sins are placed at the cross of Christ. But in other sense, we are all recovering sinners because we all lapse back into where we used to be. I mean, gospel communities, it's like a great S.A. group. Sinners, not so anonymous group. You know, it's, it's kind of what we are. No one can be in a secure relationship if they are only loved because they're smart, pretty strong, or successful. Sin isolates us from God and each other. It is why Jesus comes to redeem us and place us in community like he calls us to live. 
If you sin in isolation, it will make you sick in your soul and probably even eventually your body. I don't think that's why I have a cold, but, you know, whatever. Sin leads to death every time. And so, connectedness to Christ. He seeks you, He loves you, He redeems you, and then in confession and prayer, ushers in the Spirit of God and brings healing. So, first one, in gospel community, you give the gift of confession. Second thing in gospel community is there are no pedestals. There are no pedestals. Do you know what the writers of Scripture never do, what churches and people are so tempted to do? And that's put people on pedestals. It's some reason why people don't like the Bible. Like, every in the Bible is terrible. Yes, they are. Everybody in the Bible is terrible. Woo, you got the point. Okay? God is good. You are horrible. And I'm going to illustrate this in like a gritty, honest, biblical way. So you look at the Bible and say, who in the Bible had the best marriage? Right. Nobody. Nobody. Look at Adam and Eve. They start in paradise. Oh, it's so wonderful. Boom, sin, downhill. We all suffer the consequences. Thank you very much. You go to a guy named Abraham, patriarch of the Christian faith. Three religions in the world trace their, their lineage to this guy. Abraham lies that his wife is his sister twice. Then he impregnates her servant, Hagar. Crazy. Isaac and Rebekah spend their entire marriage arguing because they both favor different kids. Jacob has children by two of his wives and then the wife's servants. I mean, all we really know about Moses and Zipporah, his wife, is what Eric talked about on Mother's Day, and that they get in a fight because their son isn't circumcised, and his wife walks over and circumcises and throws the foreskin at him. It's like, wow, plates aren't so bad, I guess, in the house. Foreskin coming at me. We talked about David. David's a total disaster. Solomon is worse. When Job's life gets hard, Mrs. Job's like, curse God and die! That's like an argument ender right there, right? It's like, I'm sick, curse God and die. Shut up. I mean, totally. In fairy tales, oh, it's so difficult, and then you get married, and then you live happily ever after. But nowhere in the Bible do couples get married and live happily ever after. Marriage doesn't save anyone. Only Jesus saves people. Scripture is transparent about the flaws and the brokenness of every marriage, of every character. Yet in churches, how many couples sit in silent agony? Because there is an image of spiritual success. We all try to project this out. But under the surface and the reality is that maybe this couple hasn't even slept together in months. And that should not be, as your pastor, that should not be. I mean, what, what if maybe one person is physically or verbally abusive? You know, maybe a couple has a young daughter who's pregnant and they don't know what to do. Maybe one of them is a secret alcoholic. Maybe they're facing bankruptcy. Often the people who need the most help receive it the least because that would mean leaving the pedestal. But we must be as real as Scripture is about ourselves if we are ever going to be in a gospel community that walks forward and helps heal each other. Not just in marriage, but about everything. In a community, a gospel community gathered around the cross of Christ, there are no room for pedestals. In, a Bible, in, in the Bible, marriage and all of our relationships are not the fulfillment of our dreams. They're a place where we learn. And if you are a couple and you're having an issue in your marriage, the first place you should be able to go is your gospel community. They should come alongside you and help you and walk with you. In gospel community, number three, you recognize the curve. You're like, what is that? Like a baseball term? Sort of. Okay, recognize the curve. In the field of learning, there's what's called a J-curve. Okay? Uh, here's a picture of the, of the curve. It's coming. There you go. This is the picture of, of what's called a J-curve. This is a graph, and it measures performance, in which someone initially does worse before they actually start improving. The progress looks like a, a letter J that's graphed, so it dips down and then comes up. Here's an example. 
Me, I'm playing softball, and I'm trying to learn how to hit the ball better. So I talked to Ronnie Baker, talked to James Steeles. I'm like, what do I do? They're like, well, how you swing and how you holding the bat. So they're trying to teach me like correct grip, proper form, right footwork. And when you try to hit the ball the right way after being hitting the, the wrong way for so long, you actually hit worse by hitting the right way because you're starting to do it right and nothing feels comfortable. But if you stick with it, eventually your hitting becomes far better than before. At least that's what they tell me, and I hope it gets a little bit better because I have been like the weight tying us down the last few weeks. But sometimes you've got to accept you might get a little worse before you get better. Here's a biblical example. you got Peter. Peter, in Matthew 14, exercises enough faith to step out of the boat. He walks on the water with Jesus, and then he sinks. And he looks terrible. The other disciples didn't even get out of the boat, but Peter did, and he sank. In John 18, verse 10, he tries to defend Jesus by cutting off somebody's ear. In Mark 14, he goes, Jesus, I am going to follow you to my grave. And Jesus goes, seriously, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny me. And he does three times. In Matthew chapter 16, when he tries to advise Jesus, don't go to the cross, let's make a plan B. Jesus calls him Satan. Eek! You know, that's terrible when Jesus calls you that. But eventually his faith and his boldness and his loyalty and his wisdom enabled him to become the leader of the early church. He got worse before he got better. And if you take a look at the scriptures, you see that this isn't, didn't surprise or even discourage Jesus. I mean, Jesus is so patient with his disciples, you might think like this J curve would be like the Jesus curve. Because he never stops helping followers of him when they're seeking to grow. Jesus always leads us towards growth. And that growth requires his strength, but it also requires risk. And risk many times means failure. A lot of times when you trust Jesus, he leads you towards failure in a way. In, in a way. But he never gives up on students of his just because they fail. If you are someone who says, this is something for me. So uh, recently, a while back, I realized I haven't been encouraging people as much as I should. It's part of a flaw in my personality. I'm like, whatever. So I'm trying to be really nice. And so I start to encourage people, try and be nice to them. And this is what I get. Really? What happened to Aaron? Who are you? You know, it's, it's what, this is what I get from people. You know, and so when you start, it may be awkward. It may not go exactly how you think, but you stick with it and eventually you get better at it. At least I'm, I'm trying to get better at it. Anyway, uh, and maybe, maybe you're someone who's decided, I really want to share my faith. And maybe you, you haven't done it. You may stumble and fall over yourself when you first try to do that. But you go ahead. You stumble. Failure isn't falling down. Failure is refusing to try. We, in gospel communities, when people fall down, we should celebrate the failure, but come alongside them and lift them up so they can keep moving forward. And lastly, in gospel community, you give the gift of honest language. You give the gift of honest language. Uh, being human... And true humanity, who God calls us to be, means we're honest. We are simply honest people. You don't wallpaper over human difficulties with pious language. There's a story about uh, this little boy. It's an old story. You probably heard it. I don't know. He, he's coming home one day, and he sees a rat. And so he throws a rock, and he hits the rat in the head, and he grabs it. And so as he runs in the house, his mom's in the front room. She's talking to the pastor. He didn't see the pastor, and he's all, Hey, Mom, I was coming home, and, and I saw this rat, so I threw a rock and hit it in the head, and I walked over, and I stomped on it, and I threw it against the wall, and it fell, and I picked it up, and I threw it against the wall again. And he comes in and sees the pastor, and he goes, And then the dear Lord called him home. <laughs> see, when, when we try to look more spiritual than we are, we look stupid. We look stupid. Pretending always cuts us off from the flow of God's Spirit in us. Scott Peck is an author, and he actually wrote a book where he talked about this couple that he met with that always tried to use God talk in the Bible to control and manipulate each other. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11, it says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. 
This is where people say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And we talk about this, we always think in terms of profanity. It's like taking the word God and the word damn and sticking them together and say, oh, this is what it is. But I think this happens more often when we hide behind spiritual language. I think it's when people who claim to be Christians don't live for the name of Christ. Say, well, I'm a Christian, they live like idiots. That is taking God's name in vain. Now, I have been to one of these crazy Christian conferences before. And they've broken us into small groups. And in one of our small groups that I was in, I remember two people. There's a lot of people in it, but I remember two of them. And one was this traveling evangelist guy. He was hyper-spiritual. And he keeps talking in our group that he was looking for a Holy Ghost explosion. And I don't know if that's like a bowel movement or what that is. I'm like, okay, you know, it's like, boom, I need to move away from this guy before I get this arnst on me or something. So I got to get out of the way. And then there's another girl in the group, uh, and she had just become a believer. And she didn't know if Jesus and Jesus Christ were the same person. So you got this, this different disparity. So this new Christian, and she starts talking in, the, in our group about how dysfunctional her relationship with her former boyfriend is. He had belittled her, betrayed her, abused her, humiliated her for years. And then she says, now he has cancer, and I hope he dies. And this holy spiritual guy is like, you can't say that. You've got to pray for him. You have to pray he's going to be healed. The Holy Ghost can heal him right now. Let's pray. You've got to love him. And she says, but I don't love him. I, I, I hope he dies. And then she gets chastised for actually being honest. Sometimes people who are holy drive me crazy. Do you know that over two-thirds of the book of Psalms are full of anger? They express so much raw, unfiltered hostility, a lust for vengeance, a fury that demands divine justice, that when we pray today, our prayers look like decaffeinated coffee compared to it. I mean, is it possible that God could actually handle our anger? I mean, there is an old hymn, and it says, Just as I am without one plea speaks of coming to God just as we are without hiding, knowing that God's love for us is a gift that He gives to us. And that's honesty. And we must offer it to others and also accept it when others give it to us and then walk with them forward through that anger. Being who God made us to be means that we were meant to be human, but a redeemed humanity. And I believe if there was ever truly this just as I am church, if there's ever a gospel community where everybody could bring all their baggage without all their tidy little bows and happy endings. If ever there's a gospel community where everyone was loved and no one pretended, I don't think there'd be enough room to handle everybody who'd want to be in that gospel community. And yet that is exactly what God calls us to be. It is what He called His early church to be. And they were, and it exploded. One day it goes from 120 to 3,000 to 120 in one day. I don't know what we would do. It'd be crazy, but it'd be cool. We were meant to live as a redeemed people offering gifts of confession, no pedestals, recognizing growth, offering true honesty. That is what we're called to be, to be truly human. That's how we're supposed to live, redeemed in gospel communities. We are called to be human, but a redeemed humanity that honors our great God by offering the same kindness extended to us to other people. There is nowhere that this great kindness of God is seen any better than when we come and take communion every single week. Because our great God steps into humanity to show us how to live in humanity. He has 72, he has 12 friends, and then he's got three that are really close. He lives a gospel community in his life with his disciples. He comes, he offers his life, he lives, dies, rises from the dead so that we can be a redeemed humanity that can also live that way because of his strength and his grace and his love. And so this morning, we invite you to take communion. When you break that cracker, like his body is broken for us, you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, like his blood that was shed for you and I. God also created us to live in such a way that only together do we become the people he calls us to be. 
And we also invite you guys to worship God through fellowship. There's going to be some uh, food in the back, hopefully, still. There's some cookies, and I saw people eating them already, but evil sinner are you. Because cookies are for me. No. Uh, and, and we put food in the back, not for the purpose of feeding you, but for the purpose of trying to get you guys together to meet some other people. And maybe you can get connected to some other people and maybe start to develop some of these gospel communities in your life so you can connect and become the church that lives outside these walls. We come and worship corporately together as a people, but it is more important that you are gathering out there, living your life outside these walls. Uh, the band's going to come up. I, I made him stand in the back of the hallway last service a little too long. They're like, oh my goodness, I can't plug in fast enough. Sean with those big arms, like, what do I do? We're going to worship God through some songs. And, and as we sing these songs, ask yourself the questions. You know, how, how do I run from community? Am I, am I afraid of it? And if you are afraid of it, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and they would love to pray with you. If you're someone who's afraid of actually connecting to other people, we'll get some prayer first. And then maybe they can steal you over to the sign-up sheet. We'll get you in a gospel community, start connecting you with some other people. It could be brilliant and beautiful. And worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side of all in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. I will tell you that I, I talked to somebody this, this week. And they, they were telling me that, oh, I never wanted to be in a, in a small group gospel community. I never wanted to, oh, and, and, and now that they're going, they're like, oh, my goodness, I love it. I, I love my, my gospel community. I think they're wonderful. And I'm like, see, it's not so bad because it's how God created us to be in connection with other people. First, his redemption for us and then connection to others because he is a great God and he has come and welcomed us. We then are to be the most welcoming people on the planet. It's how it works. So guys, gospel community. Live together as a people. Be who God made you to be. Be who God made you to be. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we do ask that you would take us and, and have us fully realize who you are calling us to be. That when our hearts become afraid of your calling, that we would then trust you even more and the strength that you give to us. And that we would step out from the places where we focus so much on ourselves and step into the grace of your wonderful light and goodness. God, we thank you for saving us because you are so good and not because we are. We thank you for seeking us out as a people, for chasing down your kids who have run astray and amuck so often, and yet you step in took responsibility for our sin and saved us. We thank you for being better than we could ever possibly imagine. And so we ask that we would bow our lives to your goodness, to your grace. And we would trust you in the ways that you call us to truly live. We wouldn't be afraid, but we'd be excited of the things you call us into. This morning, change us, renew us, and show us the hope for who you called us to be. Thank you for being so good to us. Amen.